Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, seven years ago, writer Timothy Egan was on a walk with the governor of Montana. When they came across a statue that intrigued him, he asked a simple question. I said, who is that? Who's the guy on the statue? And the governor looks at me and he says, you call yourself an Irish American? (laughs) And you don't know who Thomas Francis Marr is? The answer led Egan on an extended journey, leading toward his new book, The Immortal Irishman. Timothy Egan is a Seattle native, a New York Times columnist, and the author of seven books. He received the National Book Award for his work on the Great Depression, The Worst Hard Time. This event took place at Town Hall Seattle on March 1st, thanks to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Please note, the recording does contain unedited language of an adult nature. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Edward Wolcher starts things off. To introduce Tim Egan uh, with a little bit more thoroughness, I'm actually going to welcome to the stage Jasmine Weaver. Uh, Jasmine is the Deputy Director of the Office of Intergovernmental Relations at the City of Seattle and a former uh, Mitchell Scholar from the U.S.-Ireland Alliance. Jasmine will tell us a little bit more about that organization and about Tim. Jasmine. Good evening, it's an honor to be here tonight as a part of this event. After graduating from the University of Washington, I had the great privilege of studying in Dublin for a year on a fellowship funded by the US-Ireland Alliance. The mission of the US-Ireland Alliance is to deepen ties between our two countries. So it feels very fitting to be here tonight uh, to introduce Timothy Egan as he discusses his latest book, which draws on the long history of connections between the US and Ireland. University of Washington alum and Seattle resident Timothy Egan is an author, writer, and journalist. As a correspondent for the New York Times, for which he now maintains a weekly opinion column, Egan was a 2001 Pulitzer Prize award winner for his series on race in America. In the realm of literature, his book, The Worst Hard Time, won the National Book Award and was featured prominently in Ken Burns' documentary on the same subject. Egan is the author of eight books in total, including his latest, The Immortal Irishman, which he joins us here tonight to discuss. Please join me in offering a very warm welcome for Timothy Egan. made it in out of the rain. Trees are snapping. This is a classic Seattle reading night. This is... (laughs) I um, saw a double rainbow from my house just before the sunset, and I thought, hmm, that's a good omen. It's going to be something good tonight. See, it is, uh, as you know, Super Tuesday, and thank you for pulling yourself away from the television. (laughs) I'm going to promise you, though, um, nothing tonight about Donald Trump. Um, But I will say that his sulfurous vapors are over the land right now. So I hope that this story we can see something that will uh, enlighten some of his followers. 
My epigraph at the start of this book is from the playwright Sean O'Casey. We don't forget, he has a character say, we'd never forget. If they've taken everything else from us, they've left us our memory. So we Irish carry with us this memory. This is our burden, this memory. It's mostly epics of tragedy broken by occasional periods of joy. Um, Daniel, Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, to be Irish is to know that the world will break your heart. Actually, he said, is to know that the world will always break your heart. So we carry that memory of famine and loss and persecution and revival. And there's another variant of this memory as well. You may have heard of it called Irish Alzheimer's, which is to forget everything but the grudges. Um, I have a few members of my family who are like that. They're not here tonight. Hi, Aunt Judy. (laughs) Those are those other family members. Um... Today, I saw this Pew Survey poll. About 35% of Americans think that immigrants weaken our society. 35%. This is a country, this from a country where everyone is from somewhere else unless you're a Native American, which is less than 1% of the population. 35%. Well, tonight I want to tell you an argument for the other side, for why immigrants don't weaken our, our country. So the another another kind of memory is of immigration. We Irish were the first real wave, and believe me, the backlash was severe. The Know Nothing Party was founded. There were pogroms in Philadelphia where they burned Irish Catholic churches and Irish Catholic neighborhoods and an Irish Catholic firehouse even. We carry that memory of coming into a country that didn't want us, accept us, that saw us as outsiders, that saw us as people that could never be Americans. And so in my hero, Thomas Francis Marr, we see the whole arc of Irish America. We see all the things that we live through up to the present day. You can find out all of this. Now, I'm embarrassed to admit, because I met some wonderful Irish folks from Galway and other places earlier this evening, um, that I had never heard Thomas Francis Marr until about seven years ago. I was in the Montana Capitol in Helena talking with the governor, Brian Schweitzer, and there's this large statue, equestrian statue, of a man with his sword thrust up into the air, staring out at the Rockies. You absolutely cannot miss it before you go into the Montana Capitol. I said, and down below at the base of this statue are these fighting words fighting words from 1848, a speech that this gentleman gave in Ireland during one of the many failed revolutions. I said, who is that? Who's the guy on the statue? And the governor looks at me and he says, you call yourself an Irish American (laughs) and you don't know who Thomas Francis Marr is. So this is my story. He was flamboyant. He was arguably the best orator of his age. Even people who disliked him said conversation and argument with him was always a thrill, even when they lost the argument. He knew Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator. He knew Chief Red Cloud of the Sioux. He knew Horace Greeley. He was hated by William Tecumseh Sherman. 
He shaped history on three continents. He lived a dozen lives in one person's life. He was a friend of the liberator, Daniel O'Connell. As I said, he was a friend of the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln. Through his life, we see all of the experiences of Irish America. Now let's start, let's go back to his start in Ireland, born in 1823. You had the British Empire spending most of 800 years before they were even the British Empire, trying to clear Ireland of the Irish, trying to make the Irish not Irish. It was, for a time, a long time, a crime to own property. It was a crime to own a horse worth more than five pounds sterling. It was a crime to play your music. They arrested people who played the harp and plucked their fingernails. And you wonder why the harp is on the Guinness bottle. That's in part why. It's, it's the sacred, sacred organ. It's a crime to speak your language. Gaelic was outlawed in most of the public squares. It was a crime to play your sport. The British passed laws which outlawed hurling and said from here on out the Irish must play English sports. So when the first bit of immigration ever out of Ireland happened in Newfoundland. What did they do? They established a hurling club. (laughs) It was a crime to wear your hair a certain way. It was a crime to sing your songs. They were considered too nationalistic. It was a crime to enter a church in the presence of an Englishman. Even the Irish graveyard was regulated, the things they could put on the tombstones. The law does not suppose any such person to exist as an Irish Roman Catholic, said John Bowes, an 18th century Lord Chancellor of Ireland. Nor can any such person draw a breath without the crown's permission. So for a while, I was actually going to call this book Patty Whacked. (laughs) (laughs) My friends thought it was too offensive, but I thought it was kind of apt. (laughs) Thousands of Irish, after one of the periodic purges of the Irish from their land, were shipped off in slavery to the Caribbean. There are descendants still. I read an article in Irish America the other day about the descendants of Cromwellian oppression who were sent to Barbados and other places to be slaves. Those who were left behind were segregated. It was the template for apartheid. They didn't call it apartheid, but it was the template for apartheid. They had something called the Pale. It was an actual staked place around four counties. Inside those four counties lived the Anglo-Irish royalty, that is the British people who had still, that is the British descendants who ruled the land after the conquering. And outside of those four, four counties lived most of the Irish. And if you, it was considered rude and offensive and dangerous and scary to be outside of the pale. And so we got that term brought into our language, sir, this is beyond the pale. Religion was a particular target. Priests were branded with hot irons. They were jailed. And with the plantation of Ireland, which happened about 300 years ago, most of the land was taken from the native inhabitants. With the statues of Kilkenny, they took language, sport, and culture With the penal laws, they outlawed religion. They criminalized the faith of 80% of the people who
who lived there. Now, of course, Rome was corrupt at times. Rome was deceitful. Rome was unenlightened. But still the Irish clung to their religion. For the same reason that hurling never died, and you can find it on the island today, for the same reason that harp became the national symbol, for the same reason that epic poems were recited in Gaelic, religion was a way for a conquered nation to remain defiantly Irish. So consider this. The British Empire was the mightiest ever seen on earth at the peak of its power. The Union Jack flew over one-fourth of the earth's land surface. And tiny Ireland, barely 30, 40 miles away, was the most ungovernable part of the British Empire. (laughs) For nearly 800 years, ungovernable. That's what they always said. And so during Thomas Francis Marr's time when he was coming of age, there was a larger garrison of troops in Ireland than there ever was in India. They could never put the people down. Now, I wrote a book about Edward Curtis, the shadow catcher, a wonderful Seattleite, a wonderful, amazing artist. And he was trying to capture Native American life, the language, the religion, the rituals, the way people lived before it was all outlawed, which it was outlawed for a while, and passed away. And while I was researching Edward Curtis, I said, there's the Irish. There's the British example of what they tried to do to Ireland, to de-culture a people, to try to strip them of everything that gave them dignity and essence. So Frederick Douglass, the great freed slave, the great voice of the 19th century, toured Ireland at the start of the Great Famine. And he said, I find myself not treated as a color, but treated as a man. But he was not prepared for the misery he sought in early 1840s Ireland. There were hungry Irish, he said, living, quote, in much the same degradation as the American slave. Not for Thomas Francis Marr, though. He was a nobleman's son. He was a prince of Waterford. He was born into this grand house. You can still go into it in Waterford on the river. That is a wonderful hotel. And sent to the best schools, off to England. And he was going to come back as a gentleman on a leash. If only he behaved himself, he could have gotten along fine. Marr goes off to his Downton Abbey level school. It looks like Downton Abbey. Comes home from England. And he comes home just as the great famine is starting to break out. The great hunger, as they call it in Ireland. It was a fatal toll ten times higher than the great plague of London. Now, there's been a lot of scholarship on the famine in the last 20 years, and it sort of dates to uh, 1997, when British Prime Minister Tony Blair offered an official apology 150 years later to the Irish. He said it was a horrible crime, one of the great crimes of England, to let the Irish starve. So this is when Marr comes of age. He's a lad of 21, 22. He's moved back to Ireland, and the famine has broken out. And it starts as this great mystery. The potato crop is spoiled. You dig under these tubers, and you find this black mass. There was a stench that came from it. You could look out over thousands of acres and see nothing but collapsed, dying potatoes. This was the ostensible reason of the famine, because so many Irish families depended on their little acre in which they could feed their family. 
for up to a year on their one acre of potatoes with a little bit of butter, milk, and a little bit of bacon. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that's come out with all the scholarship now. Three-fourths of the cultivable land in Ireland was in corn, wheat, oats, and barley. Food from Irish land and Irish labor, but it never went into Irish mouths. Over one year, 1.5 billion pounds of food was exported. They exported more beef from Ireland than any other part of the British Empire. So why did Tony Blair apologize? Because all this documentation has come out now that the British had a policy that was formally called extermination. They thought the Irish had bred too fast. They were enthralled to Malthusian economics. There was too damn many of them. They had to be culled. So this was the will of God, that somehow the hand of God was behind this. So in barely four years' time, barely four years' time, a million Irish die. They die in the streets, holding their little babies. They die, little children, their faces disfigured. They look like old men. Their teeth are green because they've been chewing on grass. They die in the corner of these workhouses where they assembled They die in their huts, where they sometimes see families that had hovered together for warmth and had died at the same time. A million Irish die barely four years' time. And the man that the British Empire puts in charge of alleviating the famine, his name is Lord Trevelyan. He says in 1846, remember, the world is outraged by this. The Choctaw Indian nation sent food to Ireland. Residents of Calcutta, India, sent food to Ireland. Some of these ships were not allowed to anchor in the port because Lord Trevelyan said, it forms no part of the function of government to provide supplies of food. Now, they had these workhouses where you could get some food, but only if you agreed to convert to the Anglican faith, the church of the king. And so we Irish have a term that came out of this, there people were called supers, or it was called taking the soup. You took the soup and you gave up your faith. Now the Brits called this, this is a direct quote, the cure. The death of a million Irish was called by Lord Trevelyan the cure. This radicalized Thomas Francis Marr. It made a rebel of a man whose heart was otherwise light. He joined a group called Young Ireland. They were poets, They were philosophers. They were lovers of verse and music. They were educated. They were young and bright and full of hope, and their country was dying. And they started out as the group of people who was just going to raise hell through this newspaper, The Nation. Uh, They also believed in total equality. So women were represented equally among the men. One of Thomas Marr's lovers was a poet who went by the name of Speranza, she became later the mother of Oscar Wilde and wrote fantastic poems about the famine and what it was doing to the people. But here were sonnets, poems, journalism, and speeches against the mightiest empire on earth. Great Britain said we could level Dublin in an afternoon. All they would do is bring the Royal Navy into port. So Marr helps to incite this revolution in 1848. He says, It would be better to risk all, to make one desperate effort to fix at once the fate of Ireland, for no country has suffered it it much. 
It was called Poetry in Action because their words were so moving. At one point, Mars spoke to 50,000 people on a mountaintop, and he said, we will not let our country become a graveyard. He was just a lad, but he captured the country because his words were so powerful. Well, you know how these Irish revolutions turned out until Easter 1916, which we're celebrating the centenary of this year, which eventually led to an Irish free republic. But the 1848 uprising was a failure, mostly because people were so hungry and the masses could not be roused, and it would be pitchforks against an empire. Marr is captured with his other fellow Ireland compatriots. He is sentenced to be, this is the exact sentence, hanged, drawn, and quartered, your head removed, and your remains disposed of as her majesty shall see fit. This was Queen Victoria, who was Thomas Marr's age. She had just assumed her throne a few years earlier. Marr sits in jail for a year, awaiting his execution. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to Ireland. I hope a fair amount have. But if you go, you must go to Kilmainham Jail. It's, the, it's a national site uh, in Ireland. And I sat in the cell where Mar, Mar sat, waiting out his time to see if he would be executed. And as they say, as the tour guy says in Dublin, if you don't come out of that jail hating England, you do not have a heart. He spends a year in jail, and then Queen Victoria, Her Gracious Majesty, commutes his sentence because there's worldwide outrage, worldwide outrage. These are the most brilliant people in Ireland. These are the next generation. These are the poets, the philosophers, the educated class, people who actually have wealth and standing while their country is starving to death. Commutes the sentence, lifetime banishment on the island of Tasmania. So now we see part two of the Mar Irish-American experience. Now, now, what is going on? Australia is this fascinating experiment. The Brits have claimed it, and they've decided that they can make it into a penal colony. They can make an entire continent into a cage. And so, in short order, they ship 160,000 people to Australia, and one-fourth of them are Irish. A lot of them are just orphans. They take these orphans off the street and send them away. It's a form of indentured servitude to Australia. They take petty criminals, people accused of stealing food, a loaf of bread, shoes. They go off to the penal colony of Australia. And within the colony of Australia is a special little place of hell, the island of Tasmania. That's where they put the political prisoners. So Marr and his fellow young islanders are given lifetime banishment 14,000 miles away from Ireland, more than half the circumference of the earth. He would never see Ireland again. He would be a fugitive for the rest of his life. This extraordinary social experiment, building a penitentiary out of a continent, would have to be his home. This place, Tasmania, where the former governor had called it this, that den of thieves, that cave of robbers, that cage of unclean birds, the isthmus between earth and hell. Actually, those of you who have been to Tasmania know it's quite a pleasant place, actually. (laughs) It's really lovely. But not if you're a prisoner there for the rest of your life. So, Marr starts his sentence, 
you're allowed to see, it's a very weird thing, you're, you're allowed to, you're not in an actual prison, you're given a district. You can't leave your district, so you can never see your fellow young islanders. You can walk around, which he does, and fall in love, which he does, talk to the birds, which he does. But he's extraordinarily lonely. He's 26 years old. He wants to make a dent in history. And he's on the island of Tasmania, 14,000 miles away from his beloved Ireland, and he's nothing. He talks to the birds. He writes letters. He goes for long strolls. He gets in great shape. He builds this little cabin. Again, he falls in love but he feels so lonely, so removed. He thinks, I will never make my mark in history. I will be forgotten. This is a man who, since he was a little kid, wants to make a mark in history. So I won't tell you how, but within two and a half years of landing on this isthmus between earth and hell, Thomas Francis Marr escapes. It's actually quite an extraordinary escape involving about 10 days in the shark-infested waters just north of the island of Tasmania. And he comes to New York City, And now we see part three of the Thomas Marr adventure. And I'm going to read a short passage here of what New York City was like when Thomas Marr arrived in 1852. He, as I said, had arranged this, had had pulled off this spectacular escape, and news of it had spread. They knew he was coming, and all the Irish American newspapers were beating the bush, were, were proclaiming this. Savior who would soon arrive on American shores. He had seen half the world from a ship's deck, and yet nothing prepared him for how many of the earth's uprooted strivers had stuffed themselves into New York City of 1852. Carriages dashed and shifted, horses clopped and whinnies, stevedores grunted and cursed, all in waves, not the music of commerce, but the off-key chorus of chaos. Boatmen, ferrymen, porters, carters, stage drivers, washerwomen, predators of immigrants, domestics walking other people's children, and teenage girls in face paint handing out flyers for the afternoon melodrama in the Bowery. Was that the Teutonic tongue coming from Kleindeutschland, the third largest German-speaking community in the world? And was that Yiddish rising from the cluster of rag merchants, a few blocks in another direction. And what hybrid of the Queen's English was this dialect of free blacks working dockside? Surely a hint of County Kildare clattered from that basement street-cleaning crew, and his own Munster brogue rolled out of a basement shebeen. All of this, all of this, in the kinetic claustrophobia of the Lower East Side nursery of a nation whose people were looking less like the mother country by the day. Around one turn, the smells were unpleasant in the late spring humidity. There was sweat time twined with horse shit and dog shit and pig shit, the piles to be swept into the river by day's end, 6,000 cartloads a night. A few blocks away, he was hit with a waft of fresh-cooked offerings of barefoot girls who enticed customers with this chant, Hot corn, here's your nice hot corn, smoking hot, smoking hot, just from the pot. The island of Manhattan was smaller than the prison district where Thomas Marr had been condemned to spend the rest of his life, but it held a world of fellow exiles from Russia's pogrom-swept villages, from the Rhine's ruined farms, from Africa's plundered hamlets, and of course, from the ashen-blighted fields 
abandoned by those strong enough to walk away from the great hunger of Ireland. On May 27th, the day Mar stepped ashore, this New York City was home to 20,000 Jews, 12,000 African Americans, 60,000 Germans, and 160,000 Irish. It was the densest concentration of Irish anywhere on earth. More than one in four New Yorkers in a city of nearly 600,000 had been born in Mars' homeland. He walked now by City Hall, where men not long from Limerick or Kilkenny held actual power. He walked up Broadway, past the booksellers and portrait studios. He walked onward toward Canal Street, then right in the direction of the Bowery. On alternate days, bare-knuckled boxing shared space with Shakespeare plays, and a scattering of Irish soon became a thicket of Irish. These people looked worn down and dirty-faced. Their tenements were awful, awful, wooden jails that would combust in a poof from an untended cigar. Here, flop joints, groggeries, and a row of slouch-roofed boarding houses anchored a city block. Nearby, a former brewery converted from making beer to warehousing immigrants. It was a home to a thousand people living in stairwalls and doorways. For 37 cents a week, you could sleep in a windowless room on a floor with straw. For 18 cents a week, just the bare floor with a bucket for your latrine. Then he walked south to the center of this stew of startover people, the neighborhood of Five Points. He knew this place, five blocks in the heart of the Sixth Ward, by reputation, for Charles Dickens had come through Five Points a few years earlier, notebook in hand, two cops by his side. The novelist was stunned to see the mix of races, Irish and blacks, drinking together, dancing in the saloons, a born-in-America toe-and-heel tap dance that was a blend of Gaelic jig and West African step. That was the birth of tap dancing. In darkened corners, mixed-race couples kissed and groped. Where Anthony, Orange, and Cross Streets came together, Dickens saw a place, quote, loathsome, drooping, and decayed. No part of London could match the wretchedness of the neighborhood. It was without grass or trees, It was without a sliver of green, and thereafter tourists paid armed men to guide them through an evening of slumming among the poor Irish for a chance to be appalled at, quote, shanties in which the pigs and the Patricks lie down together, as the New York Times informed a readership accustomed to bedding in clean linen. Organized crime, an oxymoron in five points, was often overshadowed by those babbling to themselves in the neighborhood's midst, for the change in worlds had broken minds as well as souls. Two-thirds of the inmates of the New York City Lunatic Asylum, a gray granite fortress on Blackwell Island in East River, were Irish. As well, Aaron's cast-offs were at the top of all the social pathologies in the city, but one, all but one, that being suicide. The Irish killed themselves with liquor, with accidents prompted by drink, with neglect, with disease, with violence, but would never end their own lives by their own hands, for that would ensure that misery would follow them to eternity. For these cobblestone streets of squalor, had families really traded clan gatherings in emerald valleys? For the piss and brew stench of a tenement, 
Had they swapped sea-scrubbed air? Did a million people flee genocidal starvation for a slum with the highest death rate in the new nation? Here was, quote, the scattered debris of the Irish nation. Little wonder that the newspapers drew cartoons of them as apes, filthy apes lacking only a tail. Never before had so many Irish come ashore as the year leading up to Mars' first day in America's biggest city. They were rural peasants mostly. They were people without skills or trade. Most were illiterate. They were swept across an ocean by catastrophe. The first big wave of the largest transfer of people the world had yet experienced in so short a time. They had left more than 20,000 villages to press into one large village in lower Manhattan. Now, the Irish did not know it yet on this last Thursday in May that one of the most prominent of their political refugees now, as of this day, walked among them, an escapee from Tasmania by way of South America. But he was expected. The Boston pilot had reported in its May 15th edition that Mar was free. After exchanging ships in Brazil, he was due to arrive in the city any day. And the paper put the stamp of destiny on Thomas Marr before he even saw New York Harbor. In him, they said, the Irish will find a chief to unite and guide them. So that's what he runs up against. He comes to this wretched, and he's really appalled by it, immigrant scene, and he's expected to be a savior of his fellow Irish. Now, some of them are doing well. Some of them are barristers. Some of them are prosecutors. Some of them are judges. Some of them are writers. Some of them have found their way. But the great majority of them have not found their way yet. So Marr starts a newspaper. He gives speeches. Marr clubs pop up all over the United States. There's a song written in his honor, and people dance to the Marr, Thomas Marr polka in almost any city on the East Coast. I want you to remember the start of this current political campaign back in the late summer, early fall, when the now leading candidate for the Republican Party called Mexicans rapists, criminals, people who don't send their best people. Well, substitute Mexicans for Irish, and you have the America at the time of Thomas Marr's arrival. The Irish had no word in their language, Gaelic, for the immigrants, the closest approximation was exile. And that's what Thomas Marr was. Think of what had been cast out of Ireland by the Great Famine. The Lennon family from County Down moved to Liverpool and eventually produced John Lennon of the Beatles. The Kennedys from County Wexford moved to Boston and eventually produced John F. Kennedy, the first Irish Catholic president. And the Kearneys from County O'Foley moved to New York, and they produced another president, Barack Obama. And in New York, which became the densest class of Irish anywhere, most never left more than a few blocks from where they had arrived. As I said, they were crammed into these awful tenements, and new words came into our language. Paddywagon. Hooligan. These, you can look these words up in the dictionary. They came from 1850s New York City. From this came the backlash, the first great backlash to the first great wave of immigrations. 
there was a party proudly known as the Know-Nothing Party. At one point, they were the second biggest political party in the United States. They seized the governorship in Massachusetts, most of the congressional seats, and had power up and down the eastern seaboard. They were the only party in our history founded in opposition to a single ethnic group, that being the Irish. They regularly held rallies where the Irish were called a mongrel race, which could never interbreed with most Americans. They drew them as simians with thick brows, whiskers, and suds of beer, and, of course, drunks. There were pogroms, to use the Yiddish word, in the city of Philadelphia, where riots ensued and churches were burned. Marr fought the Know-Nothing Party as the, quote, man given the designation as the chief to unite and guide them. He was the most important Irish-American of his day, but as I said, he wanted to put a dent in history, and he didn't know what that destiny would be. He falls in love with a person who is everything he is not, a descendant of colonial Protestant Anglo aristocracy, a woman from had a mansion on Fifth Avenue who had a big home in New Jersey whose father had made millions in the 18th century. He disowns her for marrying this exile, this fugitive, Thomas Francis Marr, and this becomes the love of his life. <clears throat> There's a wonderful love letter I was lucky enough to find in the Montana Historical Society <clears throat> where Marr pours his heart out to this woman. He hasn't married her, but he's asked for his hand in marriage. And he says, you know who I am. I'm a fugitive. I'm an exile. I have no family. I can never go back to Ireland. I'm a cast-off. There's a bounty on my head. But I love you, and you have moved me more than any person has ever moved me. And I want you to share your life with me. And if you share your life with me, you will be an equal in my struggle. And so she becomes his partner. She becomes his best friend. He lives the rest of his life with this love of his life. As I said, her father disowned him because of this. Now, his destiny arrives in the form of the Civil War. It breaks out. And it's unknown which way the Irish are going to go. It's really a big question whether they will be loyal to the slaveholding South or to the Union of the North. Because they're being told that if these blacks are ever freed, they'll take your jobs. They have the crappiest jobs in America. They're building the sewage system for New York City, the Irish are. They've built the canals in upstate New York. They're moving that pig crap into the river. They have the worst jobs in America. But at that bottom rung of the ladder, they're told, if these blacks are freed, they will take your jobs. So it's a big question which way the Irish will go. It's not a big question for Thomas Marr. He decides at once that the Irish have to join on the side of the Union. He said, this is the country that gave us refuge. This is the country that took us in after we were cast out. This is the country that gave us a home. We will fight to preserve this country. Lincoln, in a stroke of genius, names Marr a general. Now, this was a disparaging thing to be called a political general. And he starts the Irish Brigade. They were criminals. They were drunks. They were quarrelsome. They couldn't organize a parade without fisticuffs. (laughs) And they became one of the most heroic and vaunted 
brigades in the history of the Civil War. Robert E. Lee said he never saw people fight so fiercely as the members of the Irish Brigade. And Grant said the same thing on the other side. So he leads this disparate group of Irish, and his, his pitch is this. This is how we become American. This is how we find our way in this country. This is how we prove to the know-nothings. He goes to Boston. He's at the heart of know-nothing opposition. He says, you know-nothings, your day is done because we are going to be Americans by shedding our blood, by shared sacrifice. So it costs him a lot. He does break with fellow Irish over this. He makes a decision that we are going to fight for the Union. And at the time, New York City was not necessarily with the North. They had plans to become an independent city, not neither on the Union side or the slaveholding side. They, they were making so much money off the cotton trade that they, would, they were going to break away and become an independent city-state dedicated to what they're dedicated to still, which is making money. The best members of the Irish Brigade come out of New York City, the Fighting 69th, which to this day is still known in Irish history as one of the great brigades of all time. They are peculiar soldiers in this Union Army. They have their own division, but they're within the larger fold. They do a lot of singing. In between battles, they have horse races. They stage hurling matches. They recite poetry until they fall over at 3 in the night, 3 in the morning, when they charged the Confederates, they did it with a cheer. Fa Ambala, clear the way. They fought at Bull Run, the first great war of the Civil War, under William Tecumseh Sherman. It was a rout for the North. They were badly defeated just 30 miles from the capital. But the Irish didn't run. It was a huge triumph for the Irish because they proved they could fight in the first battle of the Civil War in Bull Run. They fought in the Peninsula Campaign, just miles from Richmond, the slave-holding capital. The most famous fight was Fair Oaks in early 1862. They were within shouting distance of Richmond. They could hear the church bells of the Confederate capital, but they never attacked Richmond. As you know, your Civil War history it was one of the great blunders of the war. When they had a chance to knock out Richmond, they never knocked him out. They fought in Antietam. September 19th, 1862. Remember that day if you don't know it already. It was the bloodiest single day in American history. 23,000 casualties in a single day. And they fought in Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, Virginia. A horrible battle on a winter day in 1862. An absolute slaughter. Robert E. Lee's men were up behind a hill called Mary's Heights. The Irish Brigade was down below and it was their job to try to take that hill. Marr knew they were going to lose most of his men. And he told them before they charged up the hill to get a little sprig of green boxwood and put it in their caps. So that when they found those bodies, they, knew, they would know that they were Irishmen who died for this union. He lost more than half his brigade over 12 charges up the hill. They never took the hill. This is the famous battle where Robert E. Lee is said to have turned to an aide because they were just mowing down the Irish. He said, it is well that war is so terrible, otherwise we should grow too fond of it. They carried a flag of a harp and a sunrise. And as I said, had that little bit of green in their cap so that people would know when they turned the bodies over. When Antietam was over, 
And Fredericksburg was over. Marr's dream was crushed because he had hoped that by leading these men into battle in the Civil War, he could then leapfrog across the Atlantic and take on the British Empire with a seasoned troop of Irish-American soldiers that would finally liberate Ireland. But they were wiped out. And his men did not know what they had died for. The newspapers on the East Coast did not know what they had died for. Families who'd lost loved ones who'd come to America did not know what they had died for. But Abraham Lincoln knew exactly what they died for. He said the people who fell on that battlefield died to free the black slaves. And so the cause of Ireland, of a free Ireland, became the cause of free African Americans. And Marr embraced it. He gave speeches to audiences the size of this, almost all Irish, where he said, we have made this sacrifice to be a part of this country. Don't think it was a sacrifice in vain. Now, this caused him, as I said, to have a real break with the Irish. We had done our first ever military draft in 1863, I think was the year. But you could buy your way out of the draft for 200 bucks. You didn't have to get drafted. You could present a human being or 200 bucks, and that would keep you out of the Irish. And most Irish Americans did not have 200 bucks or a fellow human being to offer, so they were disproportionately drafted. And so this fed into the most awful riots in our history, perhaps the most awful, the race riots, the draft riots of New York City, where the city was nearly burned, and it was disproportionately Irish. They stormed into this home where they thought Marr was, and they tore his portrait down. They would have killed him if he'd been there because they were so angry at still being drawn into this conflict. So his dream is shattered. He knows what they've died for. Lincoln offers him another commission. He goes to Tennessee. But then he asks the president for something else. He's trying to live this dream of finding a home for Ireland. He looks west, and they look to Montana. And this is a place they call New Ireland. They thought well, there's a New England, there's a New Jersey, there might as well be a New Ireland. (laughs) And his idea was if you could get these people out of these awful tenements and come to this big place under the open sky of Montana, under the big sky of Montana, they could start anew. So now we see the fifth and final episode in Thomas Marr's amazing life after the Civil War where he arrives in Montana as the territorial governor. He's actually the secretary, but the governor greets him and says, I'm leaving. He's got all his bags packed. (laughs) And the day that Marr arrives, the existing governor gets on a coach with his family and is never seen again. (laughs) So Marr is now governor of this place. And they're running Montana in a very interesting way. It turns out they have their own form of justice. It turns out they hang people without trial. It turns out they arrest people and execute them without trial. These are the right-thinking people of Montana, mostly Freemasons. They hate the Irish Catholics. Most of their victims are disproportionately Irish, Catholic, and Democrat. Now, this turns into the deadliest campaign of vigilante killing, single campaign, in American history, according to one expert. 37 people are hanged in two years' time, hanged without trial, hanged without any of the due processes that are guaranteed us by the Constitution. This is what Marr is up against when he arrives and becomes the territorial governor. He does what he does everywhere he's gone to, even when he was a prisoner in Tasmania. He recites epic poetry to huge crowds in Virginia City. He has a St. Patrick's Day party that everyone remembers. 
He does his speeches against vigilante justice, and it gets him in trouble. So one time, a suspect is grabbed, and they're getting ready to execute him, as they always did, without trial. And Marr says, no, you can't do that. He grants the man a temporary reprieve so he can appeal his case to the president. And the vigilantes go out, and they grab him, and they string him up. I have a picture of this poor gentleman in the book. And in the back of his pocket is the reprieve that Governor Marr had just given this man. And within a short time, Marr gets a note. It says, you're next. So this is what he's up against. This is what he and his beloved wife, Libby, who live in this little cabin about 200 square feet, that is the governor's mansion, as they called it. You can still see it in Virginia City. My wife and I walked through it and took a picture of it. It's in the book here. This is where he brought his beloved heir of Fifth Avenue dynasty to spend the rest of her days. And as I said, she really must have loved him. So this sets the stage for his death which is to this day one of the oldest mysteries in the American West. He, they say, fell from a steamship anchored at Fort Benton. His last day was July 1, 1867. They say he was drunk. Well, of course, because how else would an Irishman die? He was 43 years old. His body was never found. Now, I have a lot of evidence, and there's been a lot of evidence that's come out, that show he was murdered. That the vigilantes actually killed him. They pushed him into the river. A man later made a confession, a convict, 20 years later, saying he'd been paid $10,000 to kill the governor. Um, The person who announced his death, the person who discovered it, was the leader of the vigilantes. The person who said he'd been drunk and fell off the ship was the leader of the vigilantes. There's strong, strong evidence that he was the best-known victim of the Montana vigilantes. And in fact, about three years ago, they organized a trial in Montana. They brought together a real judge, a real prosecutor, defense attorneys, witnesses gave testimony, medical evidence was given, a jury was presented a case, and after several days, this mock jury found that the cause of death was homicide. As Thomas Marr had been murdered, he'd been murdered by the vigilantes. And this, as I said, remains one of the great, great mysteries. Uh, A footnote to this, when Marr was trying to establish Montana as New Ireland, um, he did draw a lot of people to Ireland, and turned out my people were among them. Um, Thanks to my aunt who's here tonight, we've traced our, my mother's side of my family to Butte, Montana. We were among the Butte Irish on my mother's side. And when that statue was erected in 1905, more than a quarter century after Morris' death, um, I believe my family was one of the current contributors to that statue, and I only found out this out belatedly. There was more Gaelic spoken in Butte at one point than any place outside of Dublin, they said. It was one of the largest Irish cities, and that's where my family on my mother's side came, came from. So... What's his legacy? Why do I call him the immortal Irishman, this guy who only lived to be 43 years old but lived all these lives? I'll tell you what. There are free people in Australia, the formal penal colony, because of Thomas Francis Marr. One of the things he did while he was a prisoner there was write all these 
seditious editorials under a pen name that eventually led to a vote that banished the penal colony itself. And he was one of the rebels. He was one of the Thomas Jeffersons writing under a pen name while a prisoner. And this infuriated the governor. He said, these Irish are just incorrigible. They're a free people. They became free people in Australia in part because of him. There were free blacks in America, free African-Americans, as Abraham Lincoln himself said, as Marr himself said when he embraced African-American citizenship ahead of most of his countrymen because of the sacrifices that the Irish Brigade did on those bloody Civil War battlefields. Eventually, there would be a free Ireland starting in 1916, this 100 years ago this year with the Easter Rising. Eventually, there would be a free Ireland in part because of him. His words were resurrected by those Easter rebels. His slogan was Ireland for the Irish. And you heard that slogan used by the Easter rebels. So when President John F. Kennedy went to Ireland in 1963, just a few months before he was assassinated, at about the same age as Thomas Francis Marr, just a few years older than Marr, um, he took with him some of Meagher's writings, some of Marr's writings, and he took with him the Irish Brigade flag, that harp and that sunrise. And he asked, what is it about the Irish that causes people to persevere so much? He said it was people like Mars Spirit who never, ever gave up, who never saw injustice and were afraid to fight it. So that's the memory that we carry, that most Irish Americans carry. It has been put to verse. It has been put to great poetry. It has been put to song. It has been handed down family to family. At times, yes, it has been embellished. Um, But we Irish are great believers in that adage that the best stories happen to those who can tell them. Thank you. Thank you again to Town Hall for this wonderful presentation. And thank you all for coming out in this awful stormy night. I guess I've got time to take just a couple of questions, and then I've got to do some work over here signing books. So if you want to go to one of the two microphones, I'll just take a couple of quick questions. Um, yes, sir. Yeah, I'm uh, Jack Crowley, White Plains, New York. Uh, and I've been told that the General Mall had trouble getting the Irish troopers to fight at Fredericksburg and Antietam. Can, can you comment on that? Yeah, there's a lot of correspondence on what happened at Fredericksburg. And um, Marr was, they spent the night in this shelled out town of Fredericksburg, which the Confederacy, first the Union had shelled it, then the Confederacy had shelled it, and the Irish were, took the furniture out of this empty town and built bonfires and spent the night. They knew what they were, they were going to their death the next day. It was General Burnside who'd taken control of the was a Union general, and it was a suicide mission. They were far outnumbered. They had no protection. But once he took his soldiers into, once they put the sprigs of green in their cap and started marching into formation, they came wave after wave. 
12 waves in all. One man got within 12 feet of that wall. Um, so all the accounts of the official records were that they fought and died at a 50% casualty rate. Um, there was, and I don't want to cast too many aspersions on the English, they've been nice to us recently, but there was a, a British correspondent who claimed that Marr was drunk while in his command and that, you know, that's why he was shot from his horse. Um, but that was never proven by his contemporaries, by people who were witnesses at the time. Uh, Maher didn't do those acts in Ireland and around the world by himself. There were five other leaders that were in that jail yes. that were released and became world shakers. Can you talk about the ones like from New uh, South Wales and the other countries that they shook yeah, up? I'll just talk real briefly. It's a great legacy. So, you know, I'm, my book is about Mar. And he was a leader of seven young Ireland leaders, all of whom are just about, most of whom are just about as famous as he is throughout Ireland and throughout Irish America. But as I said, they were all captured and convicted in some way. Some were given death sentences. Some were banished to Tasmania. They were the absolute brightest young generation in Ireland. Now, if I can find this here, I'll tell you what became of these people um, here it is. The rebels of 1848 had done well. The prison sentences, the harassment, the banishment by the British Empire had only delayed, delayed the careers of a generation of brilliant Irish. Richard O'Gorman, Mars eulogist, a fugitive, became one of New York's most prominent legal authorities and a superior court judge. Patrick J. Smythe was elected to the House of Commons on an Irish home rule ticket, served three terms. For his work on behalf of democratic movements, Worldwide, he was, he was given the Legion of Honor by the French. Kevin O'Doherty, a doctor whose presence was a palliative for Mars' loneliness, sharing grog and laughs with him on a bridge, touching, touching both of their prison districts in Tasmania, moved to Paris, married his lover. After he was pardoned, he returned to Dublin and became a fellow at the Royal College of, of Surgeons. Charles Gaffin Duffy, the editor, who was overjoyed by the, quote, thrilling music of Mars' voice and had counseled the lad through the days of the uprising, lived to be a bewigged and honored figure on two continents. He was selected to the House of Commons representing New Ross, using his voice in London the same way he used his pen in Dublin, advocating Irish independence. He rose to become the Premier of Victoria and the Speaker of the Legislative Assembly, a popular and dashing figure among the large population of Irish whose families had been taken by force to the penal colony. Charles Duffy was knighted in 1873 by the very monarch, Queen Victoria, who had jailed him in his youth. <clears throat> the only one I didn't mention, John Mitchell, the most gifted writer and most flawed human being among the young Ireland leaders, he had taken the side of the Confederacy. He was released from Fort Monroe in 1865 after spending four and a half months as a prisoner of the United States. A proud racist, he was, quote, a traitor to humanity, in the words of Frederick Douglass. For a time after his release, Mitchell was editor of the New York Daily News. He moved to Paris and was allowed to move back to Ireland. In 1914, his grandson, John P. Mitchell, was elected mayor of New York City. So, again, this... It was like it's as if we just took the greatest generation in the United States and sent them off to one penal colony. And this, they all had amazing lives. 
Mars' life I chose to chronicle because it touched on so many parts of the story, that he, he, li- he lived all these lives. Um, okay, so we're going to call it then. Thank you again. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Author Timothy Egan spoke at Town Hall Seattle on March 1st. Thanks again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon 